It is Friday, the 22nd of March, 2019. My name is Jeremy Medlin, and welcome to episode 32 of the Stock Market Movers podcast. Just a quick reminder that nothing that I say today should be considered financial advice. And if you're looking for financial advice, I recommend that you speak to an authorised financial advisor. So I have four topics lined up to talk about today. The first is the interim results from Metro Performance Glass. The second is the interim results from Sinlay Milk. Then I'll have a brief chat about EBITDA and, and smoothed out earnings. I'll use an analogy to the rental to rental property to provide some understanding of this, I guess, at least from my perspective. Finally, I was intending to talk about Sky TV this week, but instead I've decided to give my two cents on the events in Christchurch with a particular focus on gun control. So I guess about three quarters of the way into the podcast, we'll lose the focus on the stock market this week. So if you're here purely for the stock market, you can tune out then. So anyway, let's get straight into it. Some more pain for shareholders of Metro Performance Glass during the week, with the stock down nearly 8% on Monday after the market reacted to a trading update and revised guidance for the company. For those that do not know, Metro Performance Glass trades on the NZX under the ticker code MPG and also trades on the ASX under the ticker code MPP. Now, this is usually when I criticise the company for having an unnecessary dual listing. My rationale would be that the stock never trades on the ASX, so what is the point? And Metro Performance Glass is incredibly illiquid on the on on the ASX. Um, but at a recent shareholders association meeting, and for those listening, you should all join the shareholders association. A listener, I'll call him Chris. His name is actually Chris. <laughs> um, Chris works on the institutional side of investing and, and explained this one to me. I might explain this wrong, but he said that they have a dual listing in Australia so that fund managers can buy into the stock on the NZX. So I understood that Australian fund managers are not able to buy stocks on the NZX unless they have a dual listing on the ASX. And so it sounds weird, you have to have an ASX listing to buy stocks on the NZX, and they might have an ASX listing, but the stock might not actually trade on the ASX, but the fund managers can then buy it on the NZX. So a bit of, bit of a confusing thing then. But he said that it only costs the com- companies about 40k a year, so his, his argument is that it's peanuts. And I, I do see his point, it is peanuts in the scheme of the thing, and I... And I have done some soul searching on it, so it's the kind of thing that I think about, which is a bit of a worry. Um, and I think in most cases it's absolutely true. It, is, it probably means nothing and is a small extra cost. I mean, how important is it to Fisher & Paykel, for example, a company that has free cash flow of around $150 million? And the answer is 40 k out of there is, is not very important. And I guess the argument is that it's more convenient for shareholders and fund managers to invest. So I, I obviously get that. And, and But undoubtedly in other cases, however, and, I, and I'm not suggesting Metro Performance Glass, it, it might be an indication that the management is perhaps being overly focused on the share price and not necessarily on the bull. I think to, as shareholders and essentially outsiders to the company, it makes you wonder that if they're spending 40k on something like that, then what else are they spending 40k on that could be avoided and that that would be, be particularly my question for some of the smaller companies where I guess every dollar counts and for example it, it has an investor affected Ryman Healthcare's ability to attract overseas investment and I asked the shareholders relation lady this question once and, and she said that it, 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 it they've, they've obviously talked about it but they haven't really seen the point so 
yeah, anyway, getting a bit off topic here. Um, Metro provided an update on trading performance and guidance on anticipated results for the financial year ending March 2019. Now, it's obviously March 2019 now. So there are two types of guidance that companies put out just before the official results come out. There is the, we have exceeded all of our expectations and we just want to tell you how great we're going, that type of announcement. Then there is, we should warn you that things might not have gone quite as planned or quite as well as what we'd like type of announcement. And you can figure out that this is the latter for Metro Performance Glass by checking the language in the second paragraph, which reads, our financial results this year illustrate that our New Zealand and Australian businesses are at, at different stages of delivery against our strategy. When you are using language like different stages of delivery against our strategy, I mean, <laughs> it's... It's not a high school essay, is it? But it generally means that, that things are, are tough. Okay, so starting with New Zealand, things just seem to be going okay there in line with expectations with a gross management margin improvement, which is great. New Zealand accounted for about 79% or 212 million of the revenue in, in 2018. So it's obviously good to hear things have been going well there. And my wonder with a company like Metro is if the slight slowing of the construction market over here has actually been a good thing for the company. Maybe a bit easier to manage, I'm not sure. Anyway, the meat of the report is when you get to the section about Australia and they said, and I'm reading from the report here, Australian Glass Group has had a transformative but very disappointing year overall. We made significant changes in the business and while result resulting financial improvements have lagged our expectations, the business is working to a clear plan and making good progress operationally. So I'm no expert on the Australian glass market except to know that it's a difficult operating environment and CSR which is the Austra an Australian building services supplies company I guess similar to Fletcher Building they recently flicked off their glass division Viridian Glass and this was after many years many many years of battling to make that section that Viridian Glass profitable and more recently the Australian property market grinding to a halt cannot have sort of helped new glass sales and the company has said that things are improving but I think it is important to note that in Australia, they're acting in a tough market environment at the moment. And because of this, the company is making some adjustments to its expectations for the financial year. So the company is talking about capital expenditures of around $8 million, which is in line with their expectations, and a debt reduction of about $7 million. We'll, we'll talk about talk in more detail about debt shortly. They're also expecting the Australian results to reduce earnings by $3 million and are now expecting earnings before interest and tax of $25 million. The company has also said it is writing down some of its goodwill from its Australian investment and suggests a range of 7 to $10 million. So $7 to $10 million they're going to write down, um, which is obviously going to flow down to net profit. So it's, it's, the net profit is going to look quite small, although obviously we're probably focusing more on cash flow. And it'll be interesting to see if the company reinstates its dividend. They cut it towards the back end of last year. I think they can probably afford it, although it will be tight. Maybe they'll do it in a small way. Um, it would be nice in some ways to see them continue to pay off debt. The debt burden for the company is what's concerning for me. And it, as of September 2018, the company had $95 million in debt. And making the assumption that they're going to reduce debt by about $7 million, then they now have $88 million. So they have tangible assets of about $141 million and, and a crap load of goodwill in their balance sheet, which is obviously going to get smaller as well with this write-down. So it would be nice to see them reduce some debt. 
And that would be the best result for me, a big debt reduction in the company's leverage and then just spit out dividends from that, that point forward, you know. And you can see if, if they did that, what would happen to the market valuation in my view. So a 6% yield on the $40 million in dividends they paid out last year would have given a market cap of 200, around $230 million. So that that would really be the, the, the case for me is if, if they were to eliminate that debt, and it's not going to be easy, then just pay a, a big dividend and everything else will take care of itself. New Zealand and Australian investors love dividends. And, you know, a $230 million market cap, and that's, that's miles away, trust me, but would be nice for for the holders at a market cap of $87 million now. And one thing I wonder is if they have put much thought to the sale of the Australian assets. I mean, they're clearly not doing much for the business, and it could be a, a way of, you know, they're obviously not going to get a great price for it, but it could be a way of reducing debt and, and moving forward for the company. Let's see what happens. Sinlay Milk trades on the NZX under the ticker code SML and on the ASX under the ticker code SM1. That's S for Sierra, M for Mother and 1 as in the number 1. It's been one of the real darlings of the NZX and the ASX over the last couple of years. So for example, I think from... 2017 so January 2017 the stock's up over 200% so it's been a, a fantastic performer and it's you know with their supply agreement with A2 Milk it's really I guess you could say rode the wave of A2 Milk's success that's that's what I believe anyway however it's been a, a tough week for holders with the stock down nearly 14% on Thursday after the company announced its interim results for the half year 2019. The headline read, Significant Investment in Major Growth Projects for Sinlay. Now I'll, I'll come, I'll talk more about what they have to do to invest later in the in the episode here. So revenues came in higher at 470 million, which was a nice increase compared to 439 million in the corresponding period last year. So there seems to be that continuous demand for Sinlay's products and I guess as, as far as I can see anyway people are going to keep on drinking milk and into the future and it seems probable that at least in some parts of the world say China there's going to be more milk drank in the future than what there has been in the past which is really what's driven the stock price. Net profit decreased however with the company delivering a net profit after tax of $37.3 million compared to $41.3 million in the half year 18. And this may have, in some ways, to explain the decrease in the stock price on Thursday. So looking at the income statement, this seems to be due to an increased cost of sales. Um, so gross margins are essentially lower. So the company reconfirmed their guidance for infant formula. They said that key pro projects are on track and discussed some new growth opportunities. They had 200 million of capital expenditures during the half and these seemed to be targeted towards areas of growth. And this is the nature of these sorts of businesses. They require significant capital outlay in order to not only maintain not only to grow, but also to maintain their existing operations. Compare this to say Booking.com that we talked about last week, which is a a lot less capital intensive. The report also discussed the acquisition of Talbot Forest cheese assets between 35 and 40 million. Also in the report, the company touched on its A2 
on its milk supply. They said they are well supported by their Canterbury milk suppliers and are bringing new Waikato farmers into the fold. They also obtained registration renewal for their Dunsandal plant for the export of canned infant formula into China. And my guess that this is why the stock is, is priced how it is based on the expectation of delivery into China. And, and the stock, in, in my view, considering how capital intensive the business is, it, it isn't cheap. Um, but I, I guess that's just my view. And looking at the balance sheet, you can see how asset heavy the company is. They, they pretty much have a, a billion dollars in tangible assets. And ignoring the decrease in first half profits, the company last year had a net profit after tax of 70, say 75 million. Quick math will show you that the company is earning around seven to seven and a half percent on its tangible assets. And this is before capital expenditures. And the capital expenditures, the, the, this this company, they'll have to keep on making them, um, like any company, but particularly an asset-heavy company. And don't get me wrong, Sinlay is a, is a good company with some good tailwinds behind it, undoubtedly. And even though the stock has, but despite this, even though the stock back has come back from its 52-week highs of 11.35, I find it a, a difficult one to value in terms of figuring out future cash flows. I mean, due to its capital expenditures, the company pretty much needs constantly needs cash. So they're spending all this money, they need to find it from somewhere. Um, and during this half, for example, the company had to take on 72.3 million in debt, and that's just to keep up with things. Not that there's anything wrong with this, it's just as an investor, you need, need to be able to figure out the return that you'll receive from these investments. And the return on capital employed for the company has historically been quite low. And not being an expert in milk or farming, I, I can't really figure out what it will be in the future. But I guess the the bull case is that once they've fully established their network of supply, they can just pump their product overseas and into China and, and make a return on assets that's going to be sustainable into the future. I... That obviously that's that's a the the best case scenario, but for me at, at one point seven billion, which I think is the market cap, I think it's it's certainly priced to achieve that. And with these sorts of capital expenditures and money going out and what's coming in, it's certainly no guarantee. So you know, while I think they're a good company, I do think the stock is a little bit overpriced, but not if they're able to deliver on the potential in, into China. So if they can deliver on that, I'm sure we'll look back and say the stock actually wasn't that expensive right now. Now, while we're on the topic of Simlay, they are, in my view, a, a good example of how companies should report. And, and by what I mean by that, they're not hiding away from their capital expenditures. A lot of companies in Simlay's position would emphasise their EBITDA or they would report their earnings excluding restructuring costs or pro forma earnings or excluding non-recurring costs, um, adjusted or non-GAAP or there's lots of different ways that companies use to, I guess, smooth out the costs of their business. And I was trying to think of an analogy during the week to explain how ridiculous this is and I think I came up came up with one imagine owning for example a rental property and and if I think if I explain it in this way it will, will make sense and you think that the 
recurring costs of your rental property every year, for example, is obviously paying the mortgage and maybe paying insurance and, and other, other recurring cost rates that you always have to pay every year. And, and assessing the success of your investment based off your return and these recurring costs and then excluding all the costs that aren't recurring. So in a rental property, for example, one year you might have to replace the boiler or the the next year you might have to replace the 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 balcony or the deck or the doors or whatever. And then going, oh, replacing the boiler was a one-off cost. We're going to exclude that going forward in the assessment of this as investment. And of course, you probably don't need to replace the boiler again this time next year. But as as anyone that's had an investment property would know that you, you're going to have other costs that come up that didn't exist in the previous year. Maybe you need to replace the carpet next year. And to strip these out of the, or to strip out some sort of allowance for this out of your expected costs would be absolutely ridiculous and running a rental property you'd soon be adding more money into into what's happening and no doubt people do do this with rental investments as well but that's essentially what companies are doing when they talk about EBITDA and 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 non-recurring costs and restructuring costs and everything like that and no doubt those exact costs aren't going to reoccur the next year but of course other costs are and to just exclude these like they don't mean anything is I think it's a mistake when assessing companies and I think a lot of managements out there do their best to make investors investors think about it um, think about it that way so I'd always say is when you are investing in things whether it's rental property or stocks make some sort of allowance for costs that in the future that you don't know that are going to happen because they, 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 they undoubtedly will happen. Maybe your your tenant puts a hole in the wall or, or something like that or if it's a if it's a, a Sinlay plant, for example, maybe they have some sort of problem with one of their milk ducts. So I, I don't know, I'm just making this up. But those, those costs are going to occur in the future. They won't be exactly the same in the past. So sometimes though adjustments from companies are helpful. So say, for example... Ryman Healthcare reports its underlying earnings, which are more realistic based off cash rather than the fair value in their property in their property assets. And I, I do find that sort of thing helpful. Or an example might be Booking.com that we discussed last week that has, has a large stock portfolio. You'd like to see that excluded from the earnings. So it, it can be helpful, but you've really got to understand the company and, and figure out what to include and what to exclude. And just taking management's word on constantly constantly um, talking about EBITDA or something like that. As we saw with Sinlay, as we, we spoke about just before, these capital investments are, are going to be an ongoing thing. So pretending they don't exist would be absolutely insane. And obviously, Sinlay's management haven't done that, but so many companies do. So just be careful of that. And if, if you are wanting context on it, think about it from the perspective of owning a, a rental property. There's, there's going to be one-off costs during the year. They're not going to be exactly the same the next year, but they will exist in other forms in the future. Just before I go, I thought I'd give my two cents on what happened in Christchurch last week. <clears throat> Excuse me. What happened was obviously 
horrific and it, it was terrorism so they've labelled it correctly. Unfortunately it will have lasting impacts and I believe that a lot will change in New Zealand because of it. What I would say is that while I do not agree with Jacinda Ardern on everything, for example, increasing the not increasing the superannuation age or increasing the minimum wage, I don't necessarily agree with her on those things. Her her response to this has been fantastic. I, I couldn't think of a better leader in this sort in this sort of situation. She she has struck the right balance between being strong and decisive, but also compassionate. And thoughtful, and I think whatever side of the political spectrum you sit on, if you're being objective, you would probably agree with this. And most of the international press that I've read has also come to a similar conclusion. So the first thing I'll talk about are gun sales and gun control. So gun control is always a bit of a thorny topic for two reasons. The first is that most people that use guns for recreational purposes <coughs> excuse me, really enjoy it and do so safely. So they can't see why their freedoms should be constrained through the actions of others. And that seems logical when you think about it. The second reason is that it's quite big business. I saw an article on the Herald that about 55,000 firearms get imported into New Zealand every year. So it's obviously big business. And if you talk about restricting that sort of stream, then that's going to impact some people. And if your livelihood is tied to that, then naturally you might have a different view on this than the next person. So again, when you think about it from that perspective, it does make sense. So there's also been a lot of outrage at the spike in gun sales following the attacks. This seemed to surprise a lot of people, but as a follower of the stock market, it's not surprising and you'd almost expect it. So American Outdoor Brands, which is the parent company of Smith Wesson, and I might butcher the pronunciation here, but Sturm Ruger, these are two American gun companies, and they both typically see significant increases in sales any time gun control comes up. And gun control invariably only ever comes up when something like what happened in Christchurch happens. So I don't think it is as outrageous as it sounds that gun sales spiked and certainly not as outrageous as what most media commentators make out. So it's important to point out that the people running it and and buying guns now are for the most part good people and they're certainly not terrorists. So they're, they're running out to buy weapons because they enjoy them recreationally or have a commercial use for them. So it's it's logical when you think about it. And in many ways, there's nothing wrong with that. The argument, the argument is, why shouldn't someone be able to use something safely and in a controlled situation? And to answer that question, I think at this point, it is worth circling back to what happened itself, the actual event. And it might sound bad when I say this, but the shocking thing about what happened in my view is that it, it didn't take an awful lot of skill or talent. I mean, walking into a packed room of defenceless people that are you know, literally sitting around congregating and, and praying and opening fire with a high, high-powered weapon, it's, it's not rocket science. You don't need to go to university or do an apprenticeship or spend years figuring it out. You're, it's... <laughs> The idiot that did this is is unskilled. You know, it's it's not rocket science. So the question you have to ask is what made it easy for the idiot to do what he to to do that? And the answer is the weaponry that he had. I mean, he couldn't, for example, have walked in 
with his bare hands and killed 50 people. That would be impossible, you know. A 20-year-old Mike Tyson wouldn't have even been able to do that. Could he have walked in there with a knife and killed 50 people? And, and the answer is no. And he, he couldn't have even walked in there with a, a bolt-action rifle and, and, and killed 50 people. So what made this act so simple and easy was the availability of the powerful weaponry. And this is why I think that the ban on these types of weapons and, and, and gun reforms are a no-brainer. If you find yourself disagreeing with this, then... I can understand, but when you think about it for a second, there are plenty of things that humans have invented or created that have a particular purpose, but are bad because it's common sense to do so. I mean, why are you not allowed a rocket launcher or a hand grenade, for example? You could probably think of good things to do with those that don't involve killing people, but the, the fact is that they're, they're banned for logical reasons, and you, you, you'd probably find yourself agreeing with me there. And you know, even certain modification to cars for example, a, a ban because they're unsafe. Even if they make the cars run faster and, and better, they, 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 they ban some modifications because they're unsafe, because they're, they, they might be unsafe, and no one questions it. So if you apply this type of logic to some areas of society, then it seems sensible to extend them to firearms. And now obviously, banning and restricting these type of weapons doesn't reduce the chance of something like this happening again to zero. But it does reduce the chances materially in my view. So if this has gone from a once in 200 year event to a once in 400 year event off the statistically off the back of gun reform, then I think it's probably worth it and it's probably a, a good thing. So I personally, I, I applaud the action, the quick action of the government to do something about this. And maybe if it was, Maybe if we had done it at the same time in 1996 after what happened in Port Arthur in Australia and followed the Australians' lead, then maybe this wouldn't have happened in 2019. So I think that's something to think about. The other thing that I was intending to talk about today related to this was the impact of YouTube and Facebook, but I've all but run out of time, so it is something that I'll leave for later. So that's all I have time for today, really. I know we haven't only talked about the stock market this week, but thanks again for listening. And as a reminder that nothing that I say today should be considered financial advice. If you're looking to find out more about the podcast, go to www.stockmarketmovers.co.nz or find us and give it a like by searching on Facebook. Please also share it with your friends. If you want to email me, it is jeremy at stockmarketmovers.co.nz. Once again, my name is Jeremy Medlin, and this has been episode 32 of the Stock Market Movers podcast for Friday, the 22nd of March, 2019. And I'll see you all next week.